Well, good morning and good afternoon, friends, uh, wherever you are listening from. I'm Brian Buford, and I'm here with Mary Walter, and we are uh, honored to have as our guest and uh, the leader that we're interviewing, Terry Pike. Um, I'll be introducing her shortly, but just a quick recap about this podcast. Uh, we are the Team Gurus, again, a tongue-in-cheek title uh, and label, but we are here to have real conversations about teamwork and team leadership. Uh, with experienced leaders across all different industries. And uh, we promise to be unedited and practical and real um, and want to make this a great experience. And so uh, thank you for joining us. And um, if, uh, if you have any questions, we will actually at the end of this be giving you a resource so we can get those taken care of. So um, let me quickly give a, an introduction about Terry Pipe. I had the honor and the privilege of uh, working with Terry as part of a, a healthcare leadership program for, um, I don't know how else to say it, really talented leaders. Uh, uh, it will be four years as of September that uh, we connected. And uh, I'll share this story. As part of the program, there was supposed to be a pre-call. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Actually, I think there was an email server that was down and I was kind of freaked out about it. You know, to miss a pre-call program. And I remember finding Terry in the lobby and introducing myself and saying, you know, uh, I'm Brian and we were supposed to connect and I was kind of anticipating some kind of reaction. And she was so gracious and accepting and just went with it that it kind of caught me off guard and like, wow, she is, she, I've never had someone so peaceful. This is going to be a fun coaching experience. <laughs> um, and so I, I got to know Terry and character and her mindfulness uh, very quickly with that. So I'm going to turn it over to Mary Walter and then uh, we'll kind of get to know you, Terry, a little bit more. Terrific. Well, hello, listeners. This is Mary Walter. I'm thrilled to be here with the great Terry Pipe. We're just thrilled to have you on our podcast. Um, as opposed to us walking through your background, it is impressive. And you've done some really interesting work, both in the nursing field and the educational field. And as well, you tie mindfulness in throughout your work, Terry. Would you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thank you, Mary. So my, my clinical background is nursing. Uh, I'll start with the, the most recent role, which is a little bit broader than nursing. Uh, my, my role today is that I'm the chief well-being officer at Arizona State University. So supporting and connecting and amplifying resources for well-being for students, faculty, and staff. Um, just prior to that, I was the Dean of the College of Nursing and Health Innovation at ASU. And uh, before that, I was the Director of Nursing Research and Innovation at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And then there's a lot before that that, um, you know, as every year goes by, there gets to be <laughs> more and more history. But I think I'll, I'll just summarize it by saying that I've been really fortunate to work with some amazing teams and um, have learned a lot. Uh, both from patients and caregivers, families that I've worked with across the years, and then, of course, through life experiences, which are probably our, our best teachers. Absolutely. Terry, what was your first job uh, where you had official management responsibilities and direct reports? Thank you. So right out of nursing school, I went to University of Iowa for my uh, Bachelor of Science in Nursing. And the faculty and the dean there were very clear that we would be leaders. And the students, myself very much included, were very doubtful that that would ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, my very first job was that I was the charge nurse um, in a, a long-term care facility. And um, that was a challenge because I was the youngest employee and the, high, the most highly educated um, in, on paper. Um, but of course, I learned so much from the other uh, nurses and, and staff that worked there. Um, and I had to learn very quickly the really important leadership lesson of being humble and asking for help a lot. And how many uh, direct reports or nurses kind of were, were, uh, were on your team? 
I had uh, I had five nursing assistants and uh, one other registered nurse and one LPN. Wow! And it, was it intimidating like when yeah. you were the first? Yeah. 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 <laughs> in fact, yeah. I think intimidating might actually be an understatement. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great opportunity to learn from those that you're uh, leading. You know, I think that's always such an interesting dynamic, and if you're open to it and humble enough you can learn the lessons of a lifetime from those uh, that have been there working on your team. Terry, it sounds like that was a pretty meaningful um, experience that shaped you as a leader. Any other role that you can think that really helped accelerate or, or bring you, um, you strike me as somebody that really has a point of view about leadership. Can you share with us where that came from and what experience really shaped your view of leadership? Thank you, Mary. Uh, you know, honestly, every role that I've had, including my roles as a, a person, as a mom, and as a member, and all of that, have certainly shaped my role. Um, however, the the most critical role that really accelerated my leadership growth was being the dean of the the College of Nursing and Health Innovation, um, for many reasons. Um, uh, and I'll just give a few of those. One is that the university itself is very fast paced. And it's very innovative. And so while there were things to take care of that were sort of the normal part of the job, there was also surrounding that there was a lot of opportunity, a lot of challenge, and a lot of innovation that came day by day. And so having the ability to discern what, what to go after and what to say no to was really critical and sometimes challenging because a lot of the things that were out there were really exciting. Uh, so that was one aspect. And then the other aspect that I think probably most leaders can relate to is that it was way out of my comfort zone. Mm. It's not on my, my list of things that I wanted to do in my career. The opportunity just came up and um, I, I said yes to it. And after after learning from some other executive leaders, you know, one thing that most of us have in common is we didn't feel prepared for the role that we jumped into. And quite honestly, you can't be prepared because the role changes every day. And so getting comfortable with being uncomfortable uh, was, was a very important uh, aspect of that role. And then the other thing was just the um, of it, you know, the number of direct reports, the number of students, the number of uh, colleagues that I worked with. So it was a big uh, growth opportunity for me, and I'm so grateful that I, I did it. It's a great testament to making that leap, even when you're afraid and what it can lead to both for you and the team. Can you tell us for one minute about uh, the prioritization issue. You know, I see that come up with leaders quite often, all the time, in fact. And Brian and I have seen that in the teamwork that we do as well, that, you know, that can be really challenging for a team when a leader is struggling with prioritization. Any tips or tactics that you use to maintain a narrow focus, Terry? That's a great question. So so one thing is to really be familiar with and just ingrained with what is your mission? And by that, I mean, what's the mission of the organization, but also what's your personal mission? Uh, because that can allow you um, the discernment to say no to some, some things that might otherwise be very inviting. And then I think another sort of um, way to look at what to say yes and what to say no to is what will develop your team the best. What, what kind of challenges would really uh, coalesce your team or stretch your team? Or, or if you have a team that's really strong already, looking at what strengths you might amplify by choosing a certain uh, initiative or project. It's terrific perspective. Thank you. Terry, how would you say that you've changed as a leader and, and specifically as a leader of other people, uh, of, of a broader team? Um, over the course of your career, not that it's apples to apples to talk of compare yourself as dean to your very first uh, management responsibility as a nurse, but what would you say are the, the biggest changes in terms of how you led, uh, how you lead, how you work with others? You know, when I first became a leader, a lot of what my framework was. Um, was rooted in I thought that I had to have direct control 
or I had to have direct oversight and I had to really, um, you know, I hope I didn't micromanage too, too much, <laughs> but I'll bet I did. Uh, and as I've grown as a leader, it's very important to let go sometimes and not that you ever lose sight of what people are doing or, or um, let them make terrible mistakes. But allowing team members to really sometimes uh, fail and, and try things that you might know won't work. Um, of course, we don't do that when people's livelihoods or, or life is in danger. But uh, when the opportunity presents itself, when setbacks will actually lead to growth, I think that that's something that I've, I've learned is okay. And in the past, it's always I've always felt that I had to... Um, take a little bit more control or charge for that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think we've all learned that lesson at some point or another. One of the most difficult things, I think, for new leaders to learn. You know, you're so committed to delivering results and you think you can get there through sheer will versus mm-hmm. through empowering and, and uh, that willingness to let some mistakes happen. And it's an art and a science, isn't it, Terry? Because sometimes... You want to let a mistake happen, and sometimes you just can't let that mistake happen, right? So knowing uh, when it's okay, and I think in your field, even scarier with uh, literally life and death. So I, I think right. that's a really great example of how to step back as a leader and be even more effective. I was going to say that kind of amps it up a bit, just in terms yeah. of being in healthcare. Like Mary and I come from retail, right? And like mistakes <laughs> are you know, planogram wrong, or the hour scheduling is off, but. You know, and nursing or critical care can, can be very, very different. So it uh, really, really can test you, yeah. Terry, I sense your commitment to the team. And I love that answer about uh, taking on a challenge where you know it's going to make the team stronger or something new for them to tackle. So clearly you've given a lot of thought to building a great team. Can you tell us about the best team that you've been a part of? What made that team unique or, or particularly high performance, what really made it effective? So um, the leadership uh, fellowship that, that Brian mentioned, that was a, a national um, program for leadership development. I was part of a team of a, a total of five executive leaders. And as, as individuals, we were all very strong performers. And we had to come together around a decision about a a project, an initiative that would be national in scope. And it was very, um, you know, the challenge in front of us was that each one of us could have taken charge and led that group individually and just kind of charged on through. Um, But it was really imperative that we uh, came together as a team and recognized that each of us had strengths and weaknesses. And so to, to figure out and to hone in what, how could we use those? to really advance our ideas and our, our project. And, and I think that that turned out to be the best uh, team. And I've worked on some amazing teams, so I don't want to take anything away from other, mm-hmm. other teams that I've been on because I've been very fortunate. Uh, but that one just happened to be um, sort, of, sort of that magical thing when the project was over and we looked back uh, and took a breath. It was really rewarding. and. Um, and fortunately, we documented that along the way. We took a lot of pictures. We had a lot of things, projects that were sort of side projects that we we really relished. And so I think that, you know, that's one of the challenges in, in any leadership role is that the time goes so fast. And sometimes it can scoot by you before you have the chance to really enjoy it. And I think part of that teamness there was that we were all very dedicated to doing excellent work, but also having fun and uh, celebrating each other. And I got to say, just in observing that, because I had the privilege of working with a couple of leaders, um, I mean, this was a group, they, they really were the best and the brightest. I mean, incredibly smart, um, achievement-oriented individuals that um, were selected from uh, a large a large pool nationally. But what made the group interesting, because I've worked with, you know, small pockets of really, really talented, high potentials, if you want to call them, um, in different organizations, is this was a group of, uh, of nurse leaders. And 
by, by nature, nurses can are compassionate and, and, and other-centered and focused. And so it was incredible to see the drive, the smarts, and, and the care all come into play um, in, in, in a way that I just never seen. I mean, that kind of talent with those kind of qualities. And it, it didn't, obviously, there, there were problems and opportunities just with any team. Um, but that was a kind of a unique constellation of factors that I think contributed were just great ingredients uh, for, for, for the recipe for that, uh, that ended up happening. Yeah, I like that. It, you know, I think the composition, it sounds like, was really yeah. important. Who was on that team? Really Absolutely. critical. I also heard in your answer, Terry, uh, this concept of meaningful work and how inspiring and engaging that can be. And I think for the leader to help people see that meaning in the work can, can just go so, such a long way. And I love the tactic for our listeners about celebrating. You, you know, you're so right. You get so focused on what's next. It's hard to remember to kind of reflect that we're in the work right now. We're doing it right now. What's working for us and kind of celebrating along the way. And I, I think that's very powerful. And I, I like that you even mentioned pictures because you're right. Just capturing that sometimes can really be an anchor for the team to remember what they're doing and why. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And Terry, why do you think teams that are performing pretty well or not necessarily great or outstanding, but pretty good teams, you know, get off track, become dysfunctional, end up having a lot of conflict um, from your experience, you know, particularly, I guess, in both healthcare and academic settings, what kind of gets things off track? Well, the the most basic thing is that we're all human (laughs) (laughs) and we all have our our flaws. I think often in under stress, um, people revert back to strategies that have worked for them in the past. And so often they'll, they'll go back to something that's been a strength for them in the past, but it can get so exaggerated under stress or under duress that it becomes actually a weakness. And so, you know, in the various teams that I've worked on that have gotten derailed, I think sometimes it's because one or two members have gotten off course um, because of, of different, you know, problems or issues that might be within them as an individual. I think other times it's the, actually the team dynamic that is um, the important thing. And there it can, it can often be, um, you know, I, I'm not an athlete and I don't have a strong athletic background, but I do like to think about, um, you know, team sports. Many times, like in a basketball team, each one of those players has been recruited because they have a specific skill set, a specific strength, and is a, a superstar. But you can't run a basketball game with five superstars. You have to run it with a team, and there's only one ball, right? And so it's kind of the same with, you know, if you translate that into, you know, other leadership scenarios, you have all of these superstars. And so the leader is really charged with how do you coach so that everybody gets to play, everybody gets to use their strength, and, and nobody is, you know, running away with the ball or, or you know, if they're injured, that that doesn't take the, the team out of, you know, out of play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can, I can think of many different specific examples, but I think, I think that those two probably sum it up. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, Terry, it leads into a, the great, how do you select for those team players that are going to play with that attitude? And, you know, it's one thing that we see in teams quite often is, you know, if you get someone that's not really aligned with the value of teamwork, it can be really challenging to create a great team. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the other hand, you're trying to hire talent and high performers and people that have all this incredible skill to bring. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you select for your teams and how you hire, kind of balancing that, looking for the talent, the expertise with someone who values teamwork? Mm-hmm. So thanks. That's a great question. So one, one thing that I do when I am hiring a, a new member of the team is that I actually have um, other people help me interview. Because I've learned over the years that I have, you know, certain blind spots or certain thing. I my big blind spot is that I like everybody. <laughs> and so <laughs> sometimes I'm not the learning. And so I have other people help me make that decision. So that's number one, is get some other people in the room to help. 
Uh, number two is know the existing composition of your team so that you know what you, you know, the type of person that you need, whether skill sets that you need, the personality factors, that type of thing, so that it can really complement. Um, and then three is asking behavioral questions and giving really um, clear examples. Like we, we've been known to give people assignments that to work on overnight and bring back uh, a product that would really reflect, you know, what, you know, what it is that you want. Like for instance, a strategic plan for a new center, or if it's a business person, come up with a, a business plan for this, you know, this endeavor, whatever it is, you know, not, not trying to be unrealistic in the, the demands, but when you ask someone for a sample of their work, it really can help you, uh, their talent um you know that's that's a luxury when you get to hire new people sometimes and often in healthcare and education and i'm guessing in lots of other sectors you're you come into a team that is already yeah, right? yeah you're inheriting a group of uh, and you may have had little if any choice in the matter yeah yeah that's right and so then it comes back to something that mary alluded to earlier and that is creating meaning for the group. So what is, what is the unifying factor? What is the thing that you need to accomplish and how, what is everyone's role? Um, so that's, you know, the, that's a very real thing. I think the other thing that we see a lot now is um, teams that are um, ad hocracies. You know, we bring together teams uh, for this moment and then they disperse and then for this moment, and then they disperse. You know, certainly in, in healthcare, some research has been done about um, the number of different teams. You look at a labor and delivery unit, mm-hmm. and how many teams form and unform even in one shift. Yeah. So, and I think that that's not unique to healthcare. And so that's, mm-hmm. a, a, I think, a challenge is that we often think of team as kind of stagnant when it's probably a lot more dynamic than than yeah. we've thought. And then the other is, and I'll, I'll leave on this note, is the um, virtualness. You know, like we're doing right now, we have a lot of people in a lot of different places. And so how do you build team when you might not ever be in the same room together? Mm-hmm. You know, certainly there are strategies to do that. And I think we'll continue to come up with good strategies for that. I remember the, the uh, example of, of surgical um, surgical teams and kind of debunking the forming, storming, norming, performing model of teamwork, right? Which very common, and you know the assumption is you got to come together and go through these conflict. But whether it's flight crews or skilled nursing teams, that if roles are clear and you have the right people on board and people know what they're doing and there's a process, you can move very quickly and. And, and, and be very effective. Of course, there's different kinds of teams and different kinds of teamwork, but, um, but yeah, those are, those are absolutely some great points. Um, what, uh, who is the best leader that you've ever worked with uh, that really could get people to work together, bring out their best, you know, kind of create that je ne sais quoi environment of, uh, of maximizing and just making great, a uh, great team vibe. Uh, who is that person? So I, I have had so many great role models and leaders. And so this is a really hard question. Yeah. So, but I will give one example and, and that is, um, I, I won't name her, but I will tell you that um, she had the, the drive herself that really, brought out everyone's um, strongest performance. It wasn't always easy to work. She was my, my boss and it wasn't always easy. In fact, it was seldom easy <laughs> to work for her. And what made it not easy? What, what did she do or what was it that, that made it kind of challenging? She was very demanding. Okay. And she most, you know, the, the thing that was hardest for me is that she wanted a response very quickly and and often that was on email or on text and and it was often a complicated answer so it really made me hone my skill of being brief 
because you know she didn't have time. She's a very busy woman, and she did not have time to read through or listen to a lot of stuff. So just bullet a quick answer and get back to her. Um, she was the kind of person that you would wake up in the middle of the night and think, I better check my email because there might be something from her. I don't think, I mean, personally, that's not how I lead and I don't think it's a healthy environment. However, under her particular uh, paradigm and the way that she affected change, it was very effective for her. And unfortunately, um, she died a couple of years ago and the, the group of people that got together to celebrate her life all said the same thing. We've never worked so hard or felt like we had so much impact as we did when we were under her, her leadership. And again, it wasn't easy. And I, and I, and I want to say I don't emulate a lot of her strategies, but that was somebody that I, I really learned a lot from. And my guess is she had some, some other qualities in, in addition to you know, high standards and a sense of urgency. Was it that you, know, she, you knew she cared about you? Was, what other qualities did she bring um, that prevented you know, kind of just getting burned out and not being really motivated or kind of wanting to kind of you know, leave and go to another team? What, what else did she have that kind of attracted I appreciate the follow-up because it would have been a shame to leave yeah. And that is, uh, she had a great sense of humor. Okay. So, you know, even in the most dire circumstance, we would find something to laugh, genuinely yeah. laugh about. So that was one. And then the other is, you're right, she deeply cared about every person on her team. And she would go to bat for you so strongly mm. uh, and, and seek opportunities for you to grow and to stretch your boundaries a bit. So mm. definitely she was demanding, but she also, she was demanding of herself and she was always watching for ways to help you grow. Very observant, conscientious, it sounded like. I mean, she probably didn't miss much. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because we know from the research that challenging goals are far more engaging and inspiring for people. And I think, you know, being a leader that has uh, high standards and that can be demanding, you know, I, the other thing I think is people want to be on a winning team. And that's very invigorating. And I think yeah. it's, I'm glad you brought up that example, Terry, because sometimes I find leaders are a little cautious. Um, they don't want to be too demanding or they're, especially newer leaders, a little cautious about setting the bar too high. And it's a great example of you can really shine and help your team to shine and they'll be very happy and engaged sometimes with the challenging, challenging goal and standards. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that example. Now, I know you said that's not really your style and I appreciate that. But we'd like to pick your brain for our listeners and steal your good habits. So is there one habit that you have that you feel like has really helped you to contribute to sustained team success over time? Is there something you do that we can steal, Terry? Sure. <laughs> and if I could also add, knowing that you're humble, uh, what you've heard in terms of you know, 360 feedback and what has been shared with you, you know, over time or what you've heard from others is to something that you think you've done. Sure. So uh, this is just a very personal habit, and um, it's something that I, I've cultivated over the years is my own mindfulness practice. So every day I have my own quiet reflection. And why that matters for my leadership is that it helps me to reconnect with my own values and my own strengths and weaknesses and just myself. Um, we all change and we all grow. and priorities change. And if I don't check in, I may be leaving from a place of not being authentic and old views or inaccurate views. And so that has been, you know, again, on a personal level, something that has really impacted, I think, my, my ability to lead. And that does come come out in 360s that people um, say that I, I am centered and I'm focused. I listen pretty well, and um, and I also see that things change, and that can be a real asset as a leader to just see that, you know, today's problem won't be tomorrow's problem, and yesterday's problem got solved. You know, to just see the ebb and flow of life, and and so to not get too caught up in the the storm, but to know that it, this this will pass. Um, we it's important to keep doing our best to manage. 
uh, but to not get too caught up in, in today's problem, to really take a long view. Well, you've really articulated some terrific benefits of mindfulness, Terry, and boy, who wouldn't want to work for a boss like that too, or on a team with that perspective of the long view and, and to be able to stay in the moment. Um, I'd love any thoughts from you about helping others that may be interested in starting on either meditation or on being more mindful. You know, I find uh, many leaders benefit from this and those that aren't using meditation, particularly as a tool would certainly benefit, but sometimes it could be hard to get started. Do you have any thoughts about helping people kind of down this path of meditation and or mindfulness? Sure. Thank you. So, so when I talk about mindfulness, it is, you know, the way that I'm thinking of it is the ability to be focused on the present. And often that, that comes with a, a non-judgmental attitude as well. Um, so it's, it's being awake for how, how life is in this moment. There are so many resources right now to help people uh, with that. I think mindfulness has come into the, the public and the, the lay press a lot. And so there are many websites dedicated to that, many centers, and of course, um, you know, AS, the, the center that I work in is, has a great web page that I can give people as a resource if that is helpful. Um, I also want to, to call out the uh, Greater Good Science Center at University of California, Berkeley, because they have a great uh, website and lots of information. And then, you know, while technology can be a real challenge for us in terms of focus and presence, there are also a lot of uh, apps out there. And I won't name any because I don't want to get into playing favorites, <laughs> but I will. Uh, I'm happy to make some of those available in the resources as well. Um, but the main thing to realize, I think, is that mindfulness isn't some mystical state. Mindfulness is actually our natural state. It doesn't feel normal much anymore because we get really distracted and interrupted. But my, you know, being present and being alert for, for life in the present moment. If you think back to when you were a kid and you were playing, mm-hmm. you were walking down the street or when you were sitting under a tree or watching a butterfly, that's a really clear example of being mindful in the moment, not worried about what might happen next and not worried about the past. Just being really fully there, so I would I would just say don't you know the the barrier is often thinking that you have to achieve something grand, and really it's much more simple than that. Can you say a little bit about the mindfulness center at ASU because I think it is uh, unbelievably amazing. I just looked at the website this morning, and of course I was in very tangential way, a part of the journey over the past several years. Can you just say a little bit about it? Absolutely. Thank you for the, the chance. I wasn't sure that I should. So <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to plug things that are at least not for profit and make sense to the world. <laughs> Thank you. So the center has been really an organic um, uh, uh, organization in a way that is in my view, fairly unique. So it started with people that, you know, I I mentioned that I used to work at Mayo Clinic in Arizona and in my transition coming, and I did research in mindfulness at that point, particularly research in leadership and mindfulness. And as I was transitioning to come to ASU and I was going around and meeting and greeting people, Uh, folks would look at my CV and want to know more about my work in mindfulness because they were interested or they had a practice or they used it in their classroom. So it became very evident to me that it was sort of my job, so to speak, to connect these people. So I started having potlucks at my house uh, and we would just, everyone would bring a dish. We'd come to my house, we'd meet each other. And that started with about 10 or 15 people and it grew um, a lot and so now that the list of people that you know is invited to the gathering is over 400 people so we no longer meet at my house <laughs> we meet do you still do a potluck or is that to go by the wayside as well it's a lot of casseroles <laughs> <It is. laughs> 
<laughs> we we've kind of said that people can bring snacks if they want, but it doesn't have to be a you know a formal dinner. There is something pretty neat about eating together with them, mm-hmm. sharing food. Um, so so as the group grew, it also became clear that this did not have a boundary on it in terms of discipline. You know, there were people from athletics and psychology and counseling and engineering and art and dance and nursing and and just on and on and on. So building a center that was very inclusive and had a lot of growing edges, a lot of people with deep expertise that had had used mindfulness in the classroom. We had uh, an engineering professor who has used it, I'm sorry, a design professor who has used a centering practice in his classroom for over 20 years. So, you know, this was a, a new thing. And so honoring the practice and the people that had I've been doing it for a very long time. At the same time, creating something new and exciting was an interesting balancing act. Um, but we wrote a, a central proposal and sent it up through the uh, powers that be at the university and got it sanctioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, got some internal university funding, but also got a very large uh, gift from a donor that has made it um, possible for us to hire a couple of people and to conduct workshops and scholarship people. And so the center has been in place for about a year and a half. And um, please do visit our website and you'll see some of the amazing things that have, have happened. And in the leadership piece of that that has been so interesting is that it is not top down at all. It is very much organic and um, driven from within. And that the appetite for mindfulness has really come from the community and in particular, our student community. And I think that I'll, I'll leave it at that, but just with a lot of gratitude to the people who have made it possible, either by their work or their gifts, their financial contribution or their interest. Um, we have a lot of students involved and, and they have amazing ideas about how to bring mindfulness uh, in practical ways to the student populations. One, a couple follow-up questions. You talked about your practice. Um, if you're comfortable, can you share what that is? I mean, I know there are lots of different ways to be mindful from meditation apps to the relaxation response. And um, there are many, many pathways to get to the same destination. Um, what, is, what is your favorite, your go-to practice? And, and kind, of, uh, kind of concretely, when do you do it? How long does it take? Um, and uh, kind of uh, how has your practice changed? Because it is a practice over time. Thank you. So my formal practice is that I sit um, in stillness for five or 10 minutes or 20, however long I happen to have, but I generally do it in the morning as that um, focused practice. Um, and, and just for a very real reason, that as the day goes by, the chances that I'll have to get interrupted and distracted go way up. So in the morning, I, I love the mornings and I don't mind getting up early to do this because I've seen the, the benefit to me over, over time and the benefit to others as well. So that's, you know, my formal practice is, is that. And then also the informal practice is that every time that I notice that my thoughts have taken me down a, a rabbit hole to bring my thoughts back to the present moment, or uh, when my emotions have taken me, you know, in a certain direction, just noticing and bringing myself back to what's real. Um, I love nature. And so nature for me is a really great place to practice mindfulness, going for walks or even just sitting and looking out the window and looking at what's going on out there today in in terms of uh, Mother Nature. I I think also in conversation, I I try to practice mindfulness in conversation with really listening to what people say and then being guided in in my response by what's real for me. Um, So those are a few ways. And then I, I would also like to just mention some ways that leaders can bring mindfulness to their their daily practice, in addition to uh, what I've just talked about. 
for me, especially when I was um, dean, we I had an executive team, and we would start every executive meeting with five minutes of mindfulness practice. And sometimes that was an app. Sometimes it was me leading. Sometimes it was one of them leading a centering practice. And a lot of times we were really busy and we had a packed agenda. So the temptation was to just skip it. But if we skipped it, which we actually didn't, but if the the temptation was there to skip it, we knew that we would be less productive and less focused and that most of us would be in the last meeting instead of in this meeting. (laughs) Because, you know, we always came flying in the room from whatever we was on our calendar previously. And then also, so at the beginning, we did mindfulness. And then in the midst of a meeting, if we got stuck or if the conflict was no longer productive, you know, if we were at an impasse, we would just stop and, and do a minute of centering and then come back to what was our priority and our priority at the university as the student. So really getting around the empathy for the student, what would be best for the student in this situation. And then sort of uh, coming out of that mindfulness practice and then being a team again. And the resulting um, decisions and communication were so much more grounded Mm -hmm. and uh, dignified and helpful (laughs) than they would have been if we hadn't done that. Uh, So those are just some, some ways. What terrific tools, Tara. I just love that. I mean, what a great way to start a meeting. I love your comment about being this meeting, not the last one. And I, I think the technique of a leader to be able to stop the action and to recenter and to center on your most important stakeholder and priority and mission, you know, so powerful. I, I think that is a, a tactic that every leader should steal from this uh, interview. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. You know, one other little practical tip that people seem to like uh, when they ask is we all have passwords, you know, for our phones or for whatever. I've I've started creating passwords that are a reminder of a quality that I want to cultivate uh, so that every time I have to type in my password, it's sort of just a a reminder. Hmm. Oh, that's terrific. That's terrific. That is awesome. That is awesome. Instead of I hate passwords, you think it might be a little more helpful to say (laughs) be present, right? (laughs) You know, I wanted to ask um, about balancing, you know, as I was struck by you said in mindfulness, uh, a key part of it is um, being not judgmental, right? And kind of a a letting go and an upset. letting go and, and just uh, uh, being present with whatever happens and kind of abandoning any kind of expectations. And that can be very hard. Um, how do you balance um, that with also leaders often have to make decisions. They have to make judgments, um, which have consequences. And kind of related to that, the balance of, of, of compassion with, holding people accountable, you know, to get things done, to meet the needs of the organization. I've, I've always kind of struggled and enjoyed talking, kind of exploring the two. Don't necessarily see them as contradictory, but I'm just curious your thoughts, both on balancing compassion and accountability with mindfulness. And, uh, yeah. yeah, that in itself is a really good practice. <laughs> so, so I will say, you know, judgment when we talk about practicing mindfulness with non-judgment, a lot of times it's that inner critic that we're talking about, you know, that um, sort of voice that tells us often that we're either uh, not worthy or sometimes the other way that we're so good, you know, um, um, too good. So, so learning to listen to that uh, and get to be the observer of that voice and not caught up in being that voice so much. Um, however, as you mentioned, you know, being a leader is inherently you have to make decisions and you have to weigh evidence and you have to um, to be discerning, I guess, is a word that I like to use. And so I don't really see judgment as, you know, often judgment means being bad or good, you know, putting those labels on something. And when I make a decision, I, I am guided by, of course, what the evidence is that is in front of me, 
with mindfulness, I can also be guided by my own uh, values and my instinct and, and any alarm bells that, that might be uh, going off for me. Um, so that's very helpful. So, and in terms of keeping people accountable and being compassionate, I think that those go really hand in hand. And when I, you know, even when I talked about the leader that I, I really admired, she certainly kept me accountable, but she was also compassionate to me. So I think um, meeting people, I always like to think, and we talked to faculty about this with students, meeting people and accepting them where they are is absolutely essential. We want to meet our learners how they are today, um, exactly how they are. Um, that's it, period. However, we always dream with them about a better future. You know, how do they want to be in the future? What are, what are their capacities? What are the possibilities? So holding on at one, in one hand about accepting them how they are today, but never stopping believing in how they might be tomorrow. Or, or the next day. So I think that that is also true of how to help hold someone accountable is to say, you know, this happened. This was not acceptable. I believe in you that you, if, it's, if that's true, I believe in you that you can um, do this thing right. And I'll, I'll help you if we need to do that. But I need you to do X, you know, X. I think that that can be done very compassionately. Um, you know, and sometimes you just have to be very directive. Um, but then it's never too late to go back and, and debrief a situation with some, if you have to communicate uh, sort of uh, uh, abruptly in the moment, it doesn't mean that you can't go back and sort of unpack it with them later. Terrific balance of accountability in a way that maintains people's dignity and enables them to move forward. You know, it's hard to move forward when you're on the defensive. And I think the way you're phrasing it is, I believe in you and let's, you know, how can you get forward? How can you move to the next place? Very powerful. Thank you, Terry. This has been so inspirational and um, tons of practical tips that I think we can all use, Terry. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Any other last minute advice or comments for leaders in uh, leading effectively and creating high performance teams that you'd like to share with us? Um, so advice is um, something that I try not to get. <laughs> That's a leadership lesson that I think. <sighs> learning. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> what I would say is that, uh, you know, leadership has a bit of a tax on it. It has a, mm. on a lot of other people's um, um, stuff, burdens and, and so on. And so, you know, I would say, be, be gentle with yourself as you come up with these situations that you might not know how to handle or that might be difficult for you to handle. And so create rituals for yourself of replenishment uh, daily, if, if possible, uh, because the time does go so quickly. And if you continue to, um, to empty yourself out, it can be really depleting. And sometimes that happens faster than, than one might think. So the advice would be create rituals that really um, that feed you. And nobody knows what that is except you. You know, nobody can make that happen for you. So that's another uh, accountability, I guess, of a leader is to know how to replenish. You know, and for, for different people, it will be different. And then to just really enjoy the journey and know that it, you know, perfection is not possible and to do the best that you can and to keep, keep growing in your own leadership, take on challenges that are a little bit uncomfortable as much as you can. You know, I, I, I remember Terry and working with you, the, the idea stuck with me that mindfulness is contagious because I found myself being a lot more, more mindful in, in our one-on-one -on -one work. And, and I'm curious what impact, I mean, I think there, there's a lot of evidence and there's just this common sense that if you can slow down and think that you're going to be happier, healthier, make better decisions, feel more focused. But I, I think there's an organizational imperative to this as well. How does a more mindful leader impact a team? Um, from your experience that um, 
you know, the, the, what's the what's the payoff for the for the team or the organization for the leader really putting in the discipline, just like they might in trying to learn strategic planning, you know, or delegation. If we look at it, any other capability or skill. Well, how does a, a more mindful leader impact the team? So, so for me, one of the things that has been really important is that ASU is um, an innovative university and known mm-hmm. for innovation, and. So you can't be innovative if you're not present. If you think about a um, example of an improv comedian, mm-hmm. if you're not awake for the cue, you're going to miss it and everything will fall flat. In organizations where innovation is really important, and I would argue that probably that's every organization, mm-hmm. it's really mindfulness can help you be alert to the cues that something is changing and to the opportunities that are, are coming up. So it really heightens your sense of alertness to, to things that you might want to act on. So that's, that's number one, is it's a real benefit in terms of being innovative. Uh, a second one in terms of the team itself is that a mindful leader can really help identify where the strengths are and where the gaps are. Mm-hmm. In, because you're just, again, your alertness is heightened. You're better able to discern patterns. You can see when things are going wrong earlier. And so you can intervene or create a circumstance that can prevent a problem from from growing too large too fast. And, uh, you know, as we spoke, spoke about before, we can also see where people can grow. If you're really tuned in to what's happening, you can create opportunities for people that might not, that could slip by if you were less alert or awake. Um, and I think, you know, the, the last one I'll say is um, it's more enjoyable to work in a, a mindful organization because you really are grabbing on, you know, Robert Blake was a, a poet and he said, kiss the joy as it flies by. So you're much more able to see the celebrations, to see the, the good things. And to not grasp too too hard to those, to really just enjoy it and, and let it go. Hmm. That's powerful. There's beautiful. Yeah, that was really articulately described. And there's kind of a paradox, right? You, you're you're calming and looking inward, and as a result, you're more clearly seeing things outward. Um, data recognition and you know intelligence you're you're and i i love that that about uh, innovation that uh, yeah if you're not looking outward or looking ahead and being aware of what's going on in the marketplace or with with, with competitors then likely not going to be very innovative so yeah well um well thank you so much it r- really has been a joy to, to uh, talk to you and have, have this dialogue um, so many great tips and maybe we'll have you back in a year or so when you're we're all further on our journey the laugh i was watching my year and a half uh year old son last night and he sat and played with these red cups on the floor for like 15 minutes just playing with them observing them kind of abandoning in the moment and he's being very mindful. Of course, he had macaroni stuck to his head. Uh, <laughs> but he was fully, fully focused and enjoying it. And uh, I, uh, I thank you so much for, for everything you shared. Absolutely. Thank you, Terry. Oh, awesome. Pleasure. I just wish you all well on your leadership journeys. Thank you.